I'm Arthur. And I'm Susan. This is the Parent Talk Podcast. Managing the challenges of daily parenting. Thanks to our founding sponsor, Naturopedic, the nation's most trusted source of organic and healthy sleep products for your children. You can visit them at naturopedic.com. That's naturopedic.com. Welcome back to Parent Talk. We are very excited about talking about the number one problem parents seek help with, and that is getting to sleep through the night. Well, Arthur, you know, I hope you had a good night's sleep, and that's what we're going to talk about (laughs) today. We're going to try to help parents who are ready and whose child is ready to get them to sleep through the night. And I'm not at all surprised that you say that this is the number one question that parents have, because when I go to a bookstore or go online, I see a myriad of books, and all of them have something to say about sleep. You pick up one book. If you don't get your child to sleep in the first few months, that's it. You're never going to get a good night's sleep until they go to college. But then you pick up another book, and they say, if you don't meet your child's every need, you're abandoning your child, and your child is not going to feel the love and trust. So is it surprising that parents are so confused? Not at all. And in fact, it's a big industry in the United States offering advice to parents. People pay for consultations. And you might be surprised to learn that the number one parenting problem that parents seek paid advice for is around their child's ability to sleep through the night, how to help the whole family to sleep through the night. So we've got good news for listeners of Parent Talk. We're going to offer a consultation for you online that is available to you very easily and has helped over 10,000 families sleep through the night. We have to make everyone understand that unlike a lot of these books that I'm referring to, there's not one path to getting your child to sleep through the night. In fact, it has to be tailored to the needs of your child and the needs of the family. I I have to share this. My daughter, my children are never going to speak to me after they listen to these podcasts, but my daughter, Rebecca, who has a four-year-old child, the four-year-old does not want to sleep on her own. So they have come to a wonderful compromise. She gets Molly to go to sleep. She walks out of the room when when the child is asleep and Molly sleeps great through the entire night. And the next day can tell me, says, Gigi, you know, mommy just gets me to sleep, but I'm fine for the rest of the night. And that compromise works for their family. Everyone has to find their own path. In fact, including the child, right? (laughs) Well, you know, Susan, I think you remember when we wrote our book, Who's the Boss? And then we wrote the uh, For Dummies volume on uh, Child Sleep Solutions for Dummies. We read a lot of the books out on the market, and I'd be curious what your recollection is, but my memory is that almost every single one of them really pushed parents in a particular direction. Absolutely. I'm so glad that we decided not to do that, but rather just discuss the ability of parents to give their children the space to solve problems, help parents think about how they would approach doing that without being so doctrinaire or even demanding that anyone follow our advice. We're just bringing some ideas that help people find solutions. The interesting thing is we're going to start by saying when you're setting up your expectations, the first thing I want to say is that if you're okay going into your child in the middle of the night, you don't have to change anything. There isn't a rule out there that says your child is going to be ruined if you don't get them sleep trained. If you're happy doing that, keep going in and getting your child. However, I do have to say that parents should keep this in mind. Very, very few children choose to sleep on their own 
In other words, you don't get a five-year-old saying, well, you know, I'm really bored with sleeping with you and dad, so I'm going to go into my own bedroom. So parents have to realize that probably sometime in the future, they are going to have to address the issue of a child falling asleep and staying asleep alone in their room. And as a pediatrician, I have to say, I've had the privilege now of taking care of grandpatients. These are babies who are born to people who used to be babies I cared for as their doctor. And I can tell you over these years, I have found that no matter what parents do and no matter what children do when it comes to sleeping through the night, none of those decisions have any impact long term. So if they get up a lot in the middle of the night, if they sleep through the night, everyone turns out just fine. We really do mean it when we say uh, the path is very open to what you are comfortable doing. Well, I know the first thing that you always tell me uh, to tell other people is to stop the nighttime feeding. So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And I'm really glad we're getting down to the specifics because in our last uh, Parent Talk podcast on sleep, we gave everyone an overview about what sleep is about. And listeners to Parent Talk may recall that when a baby is first born, they simply can't sleep through the night. And that was for two reasons that we talked about. One was their brain hasn't developed to the point where they can actually generate sleep cycling that allows them to repeat getting back to sleep several times a night. And a very important reason they can't is that uh, they're growing so rapidly that they're not able to sleep without eating all night long. But both those things change radically at four months of age. So when that ability to sleep through the night because their brain can do it and because their tummy can do it, Guess what? Parents are unaware because their babies don't tell them when they're four months old that they can do this now. So we find that parents typically and very naturally and in a very good way are unaware of this big change at four months of age and therefore are unprepared for the change and, of course, unable to manage transitioning to everyone in the family sleeping through the whole night. I remember one of the things that you brought up and I thought was fantastic. If you're a nursing mother, which I was a thousand years ago, when you would pick up your baby, they will naturally go right for the breast. You know, they smell your milk, they feel your body. And one of the things I thought you suggested, which was fantastic, is that if the non-nursing partner cannot go in and help the baby to soothe the baby back down to stop the nighttime feedings, the mother can wear like a thick sweatshirt, something that will make it more difficult for the baby to get to the breast or even smell her breast milk. That's right. When we talk about those first steps of helping your child just get some opportunity to get back to sleep, we're really talking about the baby, even though they're only four months old, actually changing their minds. And so we want to find some ways to help them begin to eat that nighttime amount of food during the day. For nursing babies, that's sort of difficult for the mother to come in when the baby's crying and just rock them back to sleep without feeding, which is ultimately what you want to do with a nursing baby who's waking up in the middle of the night. So we recommend you still go in because this is a whole new thing to ask your baby to sleep at the night. Let's start with dad. Let's start with dad going in because the baby won't be able to smell that milk that you talked about, Susan. And as you said, if it, if, if it has to be a mom to wear, wear that sweatshirt. Now, for bottle-fed infants, mom or dad can have some ideas that might work for them. And that is for bottle-fed infants, whether they're drinking breast milk or formula. And our recommendation here is that you slowly dilute the feeding to water. 
You can begin when you make these changes by making the bottle three quarters strength, that's three quarters strength formula or breast milk, one quarter strength water. Then after a few days, once your baby's used to that, you go to half strength and then quarter strength. And then over a week or two, you'll get to water. And you know what happens at that point is as you go from full strength to three quarters strength, your baby eats what they aren't getting at night during the day. By the time you get to water, they're eating everything they got at night during the day. They don't need to be fed at night at all. And so in other words, what you're saying is that they get plenty of calories, the ample amount of calories during the day because they just increase their consumption in the daylight hours. Exactly right. So let's say, you know, someone's eating... um, pick a number, I'm making it up 600 calories, but 200 are at night and they need 600 a day. And your baby's eating 200 at night and 400 during the day. By this technique, by having dad go into the nursing baby to rock them to sleep, or by diluting the bottle fed baby's nighttime feedings, you're gradually shifting them to getting all 600 calories during the day. Now, a lot of our listeners might say, I don't know how many calories my baby's eating. Well, it turns out I don't know either. No one knows. But guess who does know? Your baby knows. Because guess what happens if your baby doesn't get the right number of calories? They start screaming to be fed. So you know that if your baby is content, that they're well fed. And that could be proven when you go to the doctors for their checkups and you see they're growing well. But we have never, ever, ever over the decades ever seen anyone not get enough food. So that point can't be emphasized enough, Susan. That's good to know because I think that that's the fear that a lot of parents have. My child's screaming, but they're really screaming. We talked about this last time because their tummy's waking them up. They're they're getting used to eating at that 200 calories or however many calories at 2.30 in the morning, and they're going to keep waking at that time to eat again. But if you can gradually change the eating from the night to the daytime, they will make up those calories during the day and be content through the night. Of course, eating is just one reason for getting up. That's a good place to start. But even babies who are not eating in the middle of the night will still wake up and want their moms and dads. Yeah. Remember those cycles we talked about last time? So you go stage one, two, three, four is deeper sleep. Then four, three, two is lighter. Stage two, they come into REM sleep. And at REM sleep, when they come out of that, they choose either to go another cycle, two, three, four and up, or they wake up. Now, it turns out that no one likes to sleep alone. And, you know, in the first four months of life, they aren't really sleeping alone. You are feeding them. You're seeing them. They're not doing the sleep cycle thing we just talked about. So they're up two, three, four times the night. Now, if you somehow move them to not eating at night, they still like the idea during that cycle when they come up, you know, into REM sleep, they have a choice, do another cycle, stay asleep or wake up. They choose to wake up because they remember the night before how much fun it was to see mom and dad. So that brings us to the next step, which is what do you do when your baby, let's say, isn't hungry anymore? You've gotten over that transition, but they're still demanding your your presence in the room. That, of course, is the key. The one thing that we can start with is say that you can really get into a routine because babies love routine. And you pick a bedtime and you pick a wake-up time. And this is the hardest part, Arthur, is that the (laughs) parent cannot go in in the middle of the night. So when that child gets into that light 
phase of sleep and they start to go, <laughs> the parents' ears are going to prick up. I know that. And of course, a lot of parents even have video cameras and certainly audio devices in their child's room so they can even hear them more. And it's very difficult for parents not to want to go in and comfort their child because just like it's a routine for the child to get to see their parent in the middle of the night, well, guess what? It is for the parent too. They have that same feeling. My child's crying. I have to go in and comfort my child or see if my child is okay. This is something that parents have to decide if there's two parents that they have to agree on this, that when the child cries and starts to fuss, to allow that child to see if that child can find his or her own path back to that deeper sleep. And listeners to Parent Talk will recall at our very first episode, we developed this theme, which you're going to hear in all of our podcasts, and it's going to come up right now on sleep. And that is there's a big difference between trauma and disappointment. When your baby wakes up, decides to come out of sleep cycling, wake up and call for you, they don't really have a lot of techniques to get you to wake up and come to them. And the only one they've really got is the ability to make you worried, to get you scared, to get you awake, to get you to run to the bedroom. So that's what they do. They scream. And it's impossible to tell difference between the scream of a real painful situation, true pain or trauma, and simply disappointment. Because the baby's going to give it all they've got, and they're going to make it sound like something terrible is going on. That's why we say, we really, really mean it when we say parents have to be comfortable thinking about which road they want to pursue. And we're perfectly fine with people continuing to get up and be with their babies at night. We're just offering some ideas in case you don't want to do that. And the first thing to say really is that if you hear that crying and you know your baby was fine when you put them to sleep, you know that they're all right and they're just crying because they like your company, not because anything terribly is wrong. So that falls into that category of disappointment. And disappointment has no lasting harm whatsoever. In fact, we found over the years not a single baby woke up the next day with any memory of anything that we're talking about. Well, they certainly aren't angry at their mother or father. They're very happy to see them in the morning. But this does sort of remind me when you said about the cry of pain. I just want to put this in. I think that another reason that sleep is just that huge question for parents and the one that you said, you know, that they will be more willing to pay for advice than almost anything else is that sleep will get distressed and disturbed just by normal family events. So let's say, let's say that you take a vacation, even with your child, suddenly you're all sleeping in one room, one hotel room, the schedule changes, the water changes, everything will change. All of those changes can, can lead to a disruption in your baby's sleep. Sometimes your baby, unfortunately, really is ill. You know, if your child has a fever, they're very congested. Certainly, you're not going to let that baby just cry themselves to sleep. They're going to need to be picked up and made sure that they're not running a fever and that they are breathing properly. Every time something like that happens, whether it's a, it's an illness or it's a change in, in, in the routine in the family, there's a very, very high probability, I should say, that your child's sleep will be disrupted. The good news is, is that if you've already established a sleep routine, it won't take as long. You can reestablish it. But I feel like parents have to go back again and again and again to reestablish the sleep routine. And I think it's one of the reasons that parents are always asking about this because it feels so awful. We've had eight days and they sleep into the night and then the baby gets a cold or mom goes out of town for work and everything gets turned on its head. So it is something that is revisited again and again and again. 
And so important, people know that's normal for this problem to happen over and over. After all, it is a negotiation. Babies want to be together with you. And if you want to sleep through the night, then it's going to be a little bit of a tug of war back and forth. And if you give your child the opportunity to figure out how to sleep through the night, they'll take it. They'll find out how to do it. And if they find an, an opportunity to be with you, they'll take that too. So they're always right. <laughs> working their opportunities. It goes back and forth. I think that's great because we, we sometimes don't give children, even babies, enough credit for how they manipulate their environment to fit their needs at the time. Absolutely. The other thing we always like to say is uh, that you can choose whether to combine these two transitions, that is moving food from at night to entirely during the day, and the transition of not coming in when called for. Those could be done separately. We've talked about starting with the feeding transition first. Some families opt to do both at the same time. That's another option that we're very happy for parents to pursue either way. Now, I think it's been your experience too, Susan, but tell me if I'm right, that over the years, we found that when families do choose to try to help their children have the opportunity to sleep through the night, they achieve sleeping through the night in usually two to four nights. That's it. That's that's starting the clock uh, with the step of not going in when your child calls for you. It might take a week or two if you want to wean off nighttime feeding. But once you get to the step, either with or without the feeding transition, of not going in when you're called for, what happens the first night is your child's going to get really upset. That's when you're going to hear all the upset. The second night, you're going to start thinking, I'm wondering if they're not coming in. And usually by the third night, they're like, they're not coming in. I'm not even going to try. So so it's usually just two to four nights. That's all that the transition involves. I absolutely concur if parents can stick with it. The trouble is, is that that two to four nights can feel like 20 to 40 nights. I mean, it can feel much longer than it actually is. But children really will be fine. And that's what we're trying to say. If you need to go in, that's fine. But if your child can find their way to sleep on their own, that's going to work. And their child will not be mad at you in the morning. Yeah, another way to look at that is that when they're upset, it may feel like your project is making them cry. That is not what we're asking anyone to do. What we're really asking folks to do is consider allowing their children to try out something called problem solving. So problem solving is not making them cry, and problem solving is not a punishment, but rather we're handing over a new skill set. Just a nice tip for people to keep in mind when they try not going in is don't even peek, because we know the word peek, but very few babies know the word peek. If you peek, babies have no idea that you're just peeking. If they see you, they'll believe that, yes, when they wake up in the middle of the night, if they cry, you will appear. And the only way to make them think that you won't appear, it turns out, is to not appear. All we're really trying to say is that we totally understand how hard this is for parents. But if you need to get through the night, there are ways to do this that will not traumatize your baby. Another big transition before we get to the end of the podcast is when a child transitions from a crib to the big bed. I was thinking of this because I bumped into a young father, or actually he wasn't so young, but his child was only three, and they just switched the baby from the crib to the bed. And this is what he asked me. He said, my wife and I are going crazy. He loves his big bed, his new sheets, et cetera. But all he does is get out of bed and he comes into our room like 
three o'clock in the morning, five o'clock, you know, they can't keep him in his room. And I know, Arthur, you have some ideas about how you make that room into a, a, instead of just being a room with a bed, but an entire room becomes like a crib. You bet. I love talking about this. It actually took me many years to sort of figure out. And the issue is, if you don't go in in the middle of the night and you help your child develop an expectation that you're not going to appear, that is very easy for a baby or even an older infant who's in their crib and can't go anywhere. But for that baby who's now a toddler who's transitioning to a bed, they can get up and run to your bed. They don't have to wait for you to show up. So how do you keep them in the room? And the idea that we came up with was to think of putting gates in the child's bedroom as converting the room into a crib. A lot of people are a little hesitant to put a gate up. They feel like they're sort of locking their child in. But if you think about the room now becoming like the crib, then it's not so much an act of locking anyone into place. It's more of just securing the room. Now with those gates in place, your child can get out of bed and look for you, but they can't really get to you. And it reminds me actually of our eldest son who we followed these uh, paths with. And I hadn't figured out the gate option yet. And he used to take all of his bedding and bring it right to the threshold of our room. He didn't violate the rule that you can come into the room. But his pillow right on the threshold. And um, I wish I had thought about the gate idea back then. <laughs> well, you have to remember that a gate is something that the child can see through. It's quite different than taking a door and locking it where they don't know, they can't see the hallway. Uh, the other thing I just want to say that if you do make your room into like a giant crib, you have to crawl on the floor like a child and make sure that there is nothing that could a child could get into that, you know, when they're alone, they could be up for for 30 minutes or an hour, they can't get into any trouble. So you have to make the room as safe as you would have made your crib, right? Absolutely. That means uh, ensuring the outlets are covered and that there's no shelves that can be pulled down and there's nothing that the child can get into because now that room is theirs alone as it should be. And for the older child, you know, you can have a chat with them about everything we've talked about today. You could talk to them about how they're not going to eat at night if they're still eating at night. You can talk to them about how you're not going to show up if you're not showing up again. You can talk to them about the fact that uh, your door will be closed and that they're in their room all night. They can do what they want in the room, but they can't come out. You can't actually make a child sleep, but you can set up the room like a crib and the child will find their way back to sleep. I think that that transition at the very beginning, a lot of kids sort of, they're so excited by this new independence and freedom that they have a little trouble finding their way back to sleep. But with calmness with the parents and some expectations that are very clearly stated to the child, it doesn't take them long to get back into a new routine. But I do have some ideas for the, even the older toddler, even a preschool age child, those who can sort of read or recognize words, even if, they, if they're not actually reading. They have these clocks, actually special clocks that say that you have to stay in your room or in your bed. It's red, red, red. And then like, let's say seven o'clock is your magic time in your house. Bing, when it turns 7 a.m., the clock flips to green and the child knows, okay, I can come out of my room because the gates may not work so much with a four or five-year-old. They could probably climb over the gate. And something else that a parent actually told me about and that I thought it was the most clever idea, this is for children. They were preschool up to early school age. They put a sign on their door that said, closed for the night. <laughs> And the children knew they could either read it or they recognized the shape of the word. And they knew that they could not go into their parents' bedroom until it was flipped to open. I love these ideas, Susan. I, you know, 
they're fun, they work, and, and, and I hope our listeners gather that this idea of a five-year-old noticing the red clock means parents aren't available and green light means, yes, the whole house is up now, everyone can get together again, seem like ideas only for older children. But everything we've been talking about today goes back to that whole concept that the parents are giving children the opportunity to learn the routine. That clock makes it very explicit. Everyone can see what the routine is. But the whole idea of going back to what we began with, the, that four-month-old infant being moved to eat all their food during the day and then finding a way to get themselves back to sleep when parents don't come back is very much in line with uh, the five-year-old reading a clock and figuring out what to do with a new situation. You know, Arthur, Sometimes parents have these issues that go well into school age. And I actually have here a question from Amanda, and she writes, I have a seven-year-old daughter who still sleeps in the bed with my husband and me. I'm actually okay with this, but my husband says he's had it. He is very angry, and this is putting a real strain on our marriage. But after years of infertility, I think of my little girl as a true miracle baby, and I can't stand to make her unhappy. Do you have any suggestions for my husband and me? And I, I thought about this, and I thought, well, of hmm. course, there are many, many issues here. We, we could talk about other aspects of this child's life that maybe the mother hasn't been able to set up expectations for. But I think that this, that Amanda can do something right now, and I think this would be a good first step for other changes in the child's life. And that is, I, this really does work. You can say to a seven-year-old who completely will understand what you're saying and what you're talking about is that now that you're seven, you cannot sleep in the bed with daddy and me. You're just too big. You need to be in your own bed. But I know that that's hard for you to, to be away from us. So you can sleep in a special little nest that I'm going to make for you next to our bed. And I tell parents, put some blankets down or an old sleeping bag and a pillow. And then you have the child sleep next to you. And when they try to crawl in your bed, you gently remind them, nope, this is where you're sleeping. You move the bed. This is actually called successive approximations. You move the child closer and closer to the doorway of your room and into their room. And, um, and ultimately the child will see, I really can sleep without having my mother and father on either side of me. And they can make this transition. And if they seem to like the bed too much, this I hope this doesn't sound too mean, but you don't have to make the nest that comfy and cozy. You could put down a thinner blanket so that the child is actually sleeping on the floor. Remember that your goal is not to punish the child, but to give that child the opportunity to know, I can do this. I can sleep by myself. I don't need to be in the bed with mom and dad. But I really like that approach. And I know you and I both really feel for Amanda's mom and dad. A lot of parents uh, have very different opinions on just about everything. That's just how we are. And I think it's a wonderful thing, actually, to have that extra resource of a different perspective, although often couples don't feel like it's an extra resource as much as an argument. <laughs> but, the, uh, but the point I wanted to make here is that before uh, Amanda's parents do anything, it's very important that they come to some agreement on what what they would like to do as a couple. And in this particular instance, whatever they do might disappoint one of them a little bit. So we always like to say to people, couples make decisions that are compromises. And uh, sometimes, often, one of the uh, members of the couple aren't thrilled about that compromise. But we really encourage people to still find 
some sort of compromise they can both at least accept and move forward together on. And that, that's so helpful for the kids. Kids really love it when their parents find a path forward that they can both accept. That gives the child very clear guidance, eliminates a lot of anger. Mm-hmm. I think it's just very good for the house overall. So I think for the parents, the first step is finding out what they want to do together. And then now with the advice that we've given them that you put forward so nicely, Susan, they have a path forward if they like to get Amanda out of their bed. Well, I think, Arthur, you have actually given us an idea for a future podcast. How do, how, how, how do parents discuss when they have very different viewpoints on some child development or child-bearing questions? This has been great. I'm exhausted, so maybe I can get some sleep tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope everyone has a good night's sleep whenever their nighttime comes, and I hope they find peace at night with their families. Until next time. Thanks again for listening to the Parent Talk Podcast. You can find back episodes and send us your parenting questions at parenttalkpodcast.com. And don't forget to visit our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, at naturepedic.com.